Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts podcast, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, healers, doctors, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instructions given to you by a doctor or personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalon Johnson. My guest today is Joshua Bolter. Joshua is a licensed therapist who practices from a contemporary psychodynamic perspective. Joshua received a master's of science in counseling from the University of North Texas, Dallas, and earned a master of arts in biblical studies and work with, works with clients on religious and spiritual issues. So Joshua, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being my guest. Very glad to be here. I'm excited to do it. Thank you for the invitation. I gave a, uh, oh, thank you. Thank you for accepting. I gave a brief introduction of who you are uh, so that the audience can get to know you a little bit better. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, please? Yes. So, um, it's, it's always a, it's always difficult to know exactly what to say in a time like this, and especially uh, you're asking a therapist to, to talk about themselves, and we're used to eliciting information and uh, listening rather than talking so much. Uh, you you, you kind of hit, I think, the main points that are relevant for today. Um, yeah, I, uh, as you mentioned, I have a I have a couple of master's degrees, and uh, the first one was in a biblical studies that was in a previous life uh, when I was I was uh, following a different path and then and, and, uh, trying to, to make something happen career-wise with that and worked real hard on that for a number of years uh, and door after door just kept closing and I would try different doors and um, just it just wasn't happening and so uh, that's how I came to this path had to reassess what I was going to do with my life, and uh, found uh, found this field and uh, went back to school. Went back all over again and got another master's, and uh, you know that 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 has brought me that has brought me here. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 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 thank you for that. Um, yeah. What I wanted to do was to start the interview with just a couple of questions. And um, the first question that I wanted to to pose to you is, um, why is it often difficult to reach out for help by means of therapy? Starting off with a, with a big one. <laughs> I, I think it's difficult for so many reasons. Right. Um, okay. I think it's difficult. I think each person uh, has their own struggles when it comes to to helping understand. And I think, and I think, you know, you and I chatted a little bit uh, before we hit record, and I think you hit on one part that's that's actually really relevant to that question. And you had said that, um, you know, sometimes. I'll paraphrase what you said, and you can let me know if I get it get it get it wrong. You said something to the effect that, you know, even sometimes our suffering, even if it's making us unhappy, it's familiar. 
and, and, and change is, is, is difficult because change is uh, to leave behind the familiar, to, to walk into the unknown. And I think a lot of folks are rightly scared of that. And so I think there's, I think that tension, that, that sort of fundamental ambivalence there, I think is part of what makes reaching out to therapy so difficult. We know something's wrong. We know we want to change. We know things aren't the way they should be or ought to be or maybe they could be better. But we're also deeply entrenched in our patterns and, and uh, we want to change and we also don't want to change. So there's like this tension there. Plus, it's just, I think even today, even after, even today, the world we live in, I think it's still, I think it's still stigmatized, especially among certain cultures, certain subcultures. I think therapy is still stigmatized and mental health and uh, to ask for help or something like that still, for a lot of folks, I think feels that it'll make them in some way weak or uh, vulnerable. That scares people. For sure. Plus, it's expensive. 100%. I know. Plus, it's expensive. Oh. Right? Plus, yeah. it's expensive. I think that's part's a big, big part of it too. It's like it's really expensive. That, that's a big. That's a big challenge. Yeah, I think there's so many um, what could be perceived as obstacles um, to starting therapy because it does take a lot to get uh, naked emotionally with someone uh, when when we've been hiding you know, things that we're ashamed of or that we might feel guilty about for so long. And then now we have to talk about them when they, we, we buried them. Um, and like you said, it, maybe if you don't have health insurance, I know the going rate, I believe, is like around 150 bucks an hour, right? So if you wanted to have therapy once a week, that's what, 153, you know, you're looking at 600 bucks a month, um, which could right off the bat, turn someone away from it right um so there there are a lot of factors i believe and and you touched on them too so yeah Yeah. we have a lot of work to do i think um to make it not only more accessible but a lot of continuing education as far as you know information we're putting out into the culture and just through media just continuing to sort of break down the barriers, all the barriers, all the obstacles that prevent people from from getting in the consulting room, getting in the therapy room, right? Because um, everyone, it's for everyone. I, I really believe it's for everyone. It's not just for the sick. Uh, one of my favorite authors and therapists, Urban Yalom, said, I think the quote went something like, um, therapy is far too good to be reserved only for the sick. Right. It's for everyone. Everyone who wants it. That's a good one. Yeah. I think another challenge may be uh, coaxing those individuals who may want it, but may not be able to put a name on what it is they want. Right. Because it's 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 deep healing emotionally and mentally, um, I feel. And, and we may know that we talked about this earlier too. We may know that we are missing something or want something, but we may not understand that therapy is the key to unlock it. Right. And mm-hmm. it may be because like you said, um, the, the, the stigmas around it, um, the fears around it. So getting to a place where we can actually put out 
the correct information on what it is and what it isn't, I feel would do a big, a big part in helping people to actually get to therapy and get the help that they need. I agree. And, and, and maybe we're kind of starting off, maybe I'm, I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but like there, there's the, the, the world of therapy is massive, right? And it's, and it's been, mm-hmm. and it's been hijacked in a lot of ways by, by, you know, by certain industries, by with certain agendas. Uh, and it, and it's really contributed to a lot of misinformation. Uh, You've got all kinds of therapies, all kinds of therapists. You've got, you know, all kinds of uh, databases like Psychology Today and whatnot with, with just vast amounts of information. Uh, and it's really confusing. It's like it's like the diet world, right? Like you've got people telling you to eat plant-based. You've got people telling you to eat the carnivore diet. Who do you listen to? There's there's just so much conflictual, conflicting information out there. And it's I think it's just really hard to navigate. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and when you mentioned that, I, I remember, um, you know, someone suggesting psychology today to me and it was overwhelming. It, it's, it's a, it's a great starting point, but it also can be overwhelming. Um, so mm-hmm. I appreciate you mentioning that as well, because it, you know, to, to not know what you need and then to be giving a given a resource where someone says here just look here to find the answers and it's such a broad spectrum of everything it can make you just want to throw in the towel yep yep for sure okay so i wanted to get into another question um is it common in therapy to feel but not quite be sure what you're feeling Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think it's super common. I think it's, it's, it's probably been nearly everyone's experience either on either side of the, of the game, right? Either on the couch or in the, in the chair as a therapist or a patient. Um, I mean, it's really oversimplified to say this, but in a lot of ways, therapy is re-education in emotions re-education and feelings, right? It's a, it's it's learning for so many, it's learning how to feel well. Not and I don't mean that like how to feel better, but how to feel well, how to actually feel your feelings. Now wow. that um that's a, a very profound statement because if you never actually learn how to do it, you you could feel awkward having to do it a different way or the right way, um, for instance. For sure, for sure. And, and and nobody comes into the world knowing how to do it. That's 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 you know that's part of the part of the problem. It's not part of the problem, but that's part of the dilemma, the human condition. Nobody comes into the world knowing how to feel. We, we all come in completely dependent upon our caregivers. Um, right. And we are, you know, this is psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic theorists have known this for years, but 
theories like attachment and attachment theory and uh, neuroscience and more contemporary theories are now really confirming what has been known for, for many, many years and they're really elucidating it. But um, we've come into the world and we're completely dependent and we, we, we require the mind and the brain of our caregivers to develop our own minds, our own brains, our own capacity to feel. And for many of us, we don't, we don't get that. And so that, that part of our development is really stunted. And we grow up and we look functional in the world most of the time. Uh, but we've got this part of us that, that is still really underdeveloped. And that, that can be a big, a big, a big part of therapy. Also, um, to kind of build off of, of what you just said, if our caregivers didn't know how, yes. um, that could be passed on just, you know, yeah. generation after generation until someone Breaks the learns how. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. We are, we have learned through, through attachment research. We've done these longitudinal studies that have, that have revealed that, that, that attachment and trauma, you know, and, you know, Trauma is a buzzword these days, and it, it's a big word that means a lot of things. But I don't mean capital T trauma, like a like a like a war veteran or like a, a plane crash or something, but a lower key, lower case T trauma, relational developmental trauma. That's transgenerational, right? Trauma is transgenerational, like you said. It just passes on. It just passes on, right? And so until someone breaks the cycle, until someone Decides to do things differently. It's really a, it's really a, it's really something, right? It's powerful. And even, even the cycle breaker, at that point, has such an uphill battle because now, like we spoke about, you're dealing with things that have been done for so long. You're comfortable doing them, so now you have to try and convince everyone. Okay, hey, we've been doing this, and we need to do it this way. And that may seem disrespectful. It may seem like you're doing so many things in opposition to, you know, the way the family has always done things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it can really be an uphill battle. And um, you're not just convincing, the way I heard that is you're not just, it's not just about convincing the external people in your life. Right, all those, all the people in your life and your family and friends, and <clears throat> it's also it's also about convincing all the internal parts, right? Correct. Uh, all those parts, they don't know what you're doing either. They've done things a long time as well. They've got generations of of, of trauma, you know, etched in their DNA, and now you're asking them to go against the grain and to change. And to, to try something new, and, and you get all kinds of. You get, I mean, you get it's, it gets messy. Uh, it's it's life it's it's life giving often, but it gets messy. It's, it's it can be that's that's part of what I think makes good therapy so effective um, is working through all that with with someone in the in the sort of safety of a of a, a good enough. Therapy relationship. 
it's not necessary. I agree. But you can, you can, you can, it can be a non-therapy relationship. But um, it, it there needs to be a real safe container to explore all that. Right, because like you said, the the safety is important, and and the patterns that have been etched into the DNA through generations, like you said, all those parts that are connected to that, you know, they're, they're going to be in an uproar if you try and do something different. And then also there's a nervous system. There's, there's so much involved and, and it makes sense why it is so difficult to be that cycle breaker or just to be someone who wants something different because you could have, you know, years and years and years worth of, or generations uh, upon generations worth of, you know, a certain way of doing things in your DNA. So like you said, it, it is uphill and it, it is difficult. So having that safe space to do it, whether it be a, a therapist or, you know, just anyone to, to talk and get these things out, it's, it's important. Okay. Um, so I wanted to ask another question, right? Building off of, of the safe spaces and, and getting things out with, uh, through therapy. Um, can therapy be effective with just words? It's the talking cure, right? Um, it's, you know, psychoanalysis is famously um, referred to as the talking cure. It's, it's, it's healing through, through, through talking. Um, <clears throat> can it be healing through just words? Uh, you know, I'm tempted to say no. Um, because because the talking cure is really the the right talking talking or insight right psychotherapy is often talked about as cure or healing through insight which is really important insight's really important but it has to be a certain kind of insight it can't just be a cerebral uh, head knowledge type of insight that that comes and it's important, but I think what's most important is emotional insight, uh, insight that comes with an affective experience. So healing through talking, yes, but healing through talking with a connection to how you're feeling, right? I often say to my patients, let's think about our feelings and, and feel about our thoughts, right? And it kind of just goes back and forth, right? Like we're, we need to do things differently. We need to bridge these two worlds, um, the worlds of, of, of talking and of feeling. And, and, and much of the time what happens is, you know, where people are talking, maybe a patient is saying something and they might be, Telling me something quite, quite disturbing, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm really feeling a certain way. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm inside. I'm feeling quite sad for this, for this experience this person is telling me. Uh, but I notice that I notice they're telling me in a, in a very matter-of-fact way, right? Just it's, it's almost like they're describing the weather to me, right? It's, it's a clear, sunny day, and the it's a bit chilly, right? And so 
they're talking about these things, but there seems to be a disconnect, right? And so it's you know we we, we stop and we slow down and we think about and feel about what's going on just below the words as well. As as you tell me these things, what is it that you notice going on in your body? Right? What are you feeling? And so we're we're just kind of constantly bridging the gaps between between those two worlds because they are they are two worlds, but they're also connected. Intimately. They've just been split for whatever reason. That is so beautifully uh, illustrated. Because what was it? Let's let's talk about our feelings, and when it, I forget yeah. what you said, yeah. let's yeah. let's think yeah. about our feelings and feel about our thinking. Is what was something, that? It? Yeah, something like that. Let's. And if I think about it that too long, I might I might find problems with it and break it down. But uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, let's let's you know think about our feelings and feel about our thoughts, right? Like it's just we're so accustomed to these things being done in, in very separate ways um right and when you bridge the two consciously um really really uh it's a really powerful experience yeah for sure but i mean because there is like you said the the cerebral aspect but also at a certain point you have to connect to your body to understand what's going on so if you can bridge those two i believe that is where you know, a good amount of healing can take place. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Okay. Um, how can therapy change complex and sophisticated defensive defenses that have been built over time? This is such a good question. It's such a it's such a big question. It is. It's going to be difficult to like not spend the whole time on on this question. Um, how can therapy deal with complex defenses? How can therapy challenge complex yeah. and sophisticated defenses that have been built over time? It's so hard to know how much to say. So the sort of the old way of thinking. Uh, and still lots of folks think like this and it's, it's, it's not all together wrong. Uh, it's just, I think with what we, with what more contemporary theories have taught us, it, it has changed a little bit for the better. I think, you know, the old way of thinking is, is, you know, a, a patient comes in, uh, they've got, uh, you know, whatever defenses that are in place and, the therapist or the analyst is trying to get behind the defense, trying to discover what's what what's being defended against, and and there's pushback by the patient, right? Uh, not consciously most of the time, uh, but there's this resistance. And one of the major ways psychoanalytic theory I think has evolved for the better is is recognizing that that that, that aspect of resistance um, how it how it relates to uh, dissociation which I, I think we're going to get into um, and how how it how it how it relates to 
adaptive patterns in childhood, right? How things how things sort of form. So so all that to say, how can it how can it challenge defenses? Like the way the way I practice, at least I can talk about the way I the way I practice. Um, for me, all these all these defenses they show up in a therapy room. They show up in a therapy relationship, right? And we have the ability in therapy to, to reflect on and sort of make explicit what shows up implicitly and relationally, right? So these defenses um, that have been, that have been sort of adapted over time, and, and they are adaptive, right? All these things that are getting in people's ways, all these things that are making life difficult for grown-ups, for adults, these are all, at least most, if not all, these were life-saving at, at a certain time in their life. So we can't, we can't, we can't demonize them. They were necessary for this person's survival, psychically, emotionally. But the problem is, they're 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 outdated now, and so, and 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 that's why they're in therapy because they're they're recognizing that my relationships are not working. Something's not working, right? And so when they come to therapy, all these patterns they they do show up. These defenses they do show up. But in therapy, we have the, you know, hopefully we have the ability to form a, a strong enough rapport, a strong enough therapeutic alliance where we're on the same page about the work. And we can, we can, the therapist can notice what's happening relationally and implicitly in the, in, in the therapy room. And we can talk about it. We can reflect upon it. We can bring, we can bring affective experience to it. Uh, we can bring empathy to it. You can bring understanding and insight to it, right? This is all part of the working through process, and it and it and it, it's cyclical. You have to you have to do it over and over because these defenses are strong, and so it's not a one-time thing. And then you're good. You have to work through over and over, and slowly, slowly, sometimes painfully slowly. Something inside starts to shift. Something starts to give way. Those defenses start to um, to break down, and I think that's when when real change starts to happen. I feel like I well, rambled. Was, no, no, no. You did not at all. That was a beautiful explanation of how that can happen. Um, so, so thank you for that. And what I want to do is um is build off of that a little bit and say what can be discovered once the defenses are challenged and uncovered so many things <laughs> so many things right <laughs> so many so many so many so many parts right and this is so you know, appropriate for this podcast, not your ordinary parts, because all so much of this is about the different parts of us, right? 
so many parts that have been that have been dissociated or 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 disavowed or or you know for whatever reason sort of relegated to the shadows right so many emotions and feelings so many fears, so much that has to do with someone's true self, right? Who they really are, um, and not everyone would, would agree with this type of language, uh, but who, who, who they really are, but who they never got to be because of their circumstances. Um, they, you know, so many people have developed a facade, a false self. They've built their lives upon, upon a self that isn't true because they had to and they don't even know it but they know something's wrong and in therapy they start to discover who they really are or maybe we could say they start to create or recreate who they really are right um, yeah wow that was so good I mean I think the way you broke that down and explained about the different parts and, and the, the things that you become not even really knowing you, you did it, but you had to in order to survive. That was, that was so good, Josh. So good. That's liberating for so many people. Just that part, just that part is liberating for so many people that they don't know why their life is in, just like in shambles. And then they start to realize how they had to adapt to, to something. And that, that doesn't go far enough. But, but, but that alone can be so liberating for people. For sure. I yeah. agree. Um, okay. So as you're getting um, in touch with this therapeutic process and you're, you're learning who you are um, and you're, you're doing some, some deep healing emotionally, um, how easy is it to just, you know, let the past go? Some people say, oh, don't, don't, don't live in the past. Don't worry about the past. Is that an easy thing to do? You can't. You can't do it, right? You can't just. You can't do it, right? Um, I'm sure there's someone out there who would say, "I did it," uh, and, and I don't want to argue with you know. I don't want to argue with anyone, but the, the problem with that that I have, the the issue that I take with that. Uh, in, in, in psychoanalysis and in psychodynamic therapy, they're criticized, often rightly, for having a, a preoccupation with the past. I'd, all, all you want me to do is talk about my childhood and my mother and my, my daddy issues, and I don't want to do that. Um, and, but that's, in a, in a big way, that's... Actually, that's even unfair to say of Freud, I think, and the original founders of, of psychoanalysis. But especially today in contem you know, contemporary work, um, the past, we explore the past through the present. In other words, the past is not dead. The past is not even past. The past is living. It lives in the present. It shows up in the here and now. So to say you should just let go of what happened to you, let go of your past, is to say, like, stop existing. Who would you even be? 
so we have to work we have to work through these these these, these issues these patterns right um, to say nothing of, of so much so much probably the majority of these of these aspects are unconscious you know we're not even aware of them how do you let go of something that you're not aware of? I think that may have been the best explanation of um, letting go of the past I've, I've ever heard because it is so deep and you can't just do it. And like you said, how do you let go of, you know, if you do that, then you, you stop existing. That was such a good explanation. And, and it's, and I think it, it sets a lot of people up for failure and for feeling feeling bad and shameful yeah. about themselves because you know Joshua just let you yeah. should just let go you should just let go of the past but I no matter how hard I try I can't I keep making the same mistakes and now I feel like well what's wrong with me how come I can't just let go of the past I must not be doing it right so it's so true. it's problematic I think um, just in general right. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, and then also explaining how, because you can't do it, you, you do at times start to feel shameful or, you know, what am I doing wrong or why can't I do this? And it's not that you're doing anything wrong. It's just that it needs to be done a certain way. And just saying, forget about it is not the way. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of spiritual bypassing, this concept of spiritual bypassing. Are you familiar with that, with that term? A, a little bit, but I would love for you to, to sound on it. Yeah, I mean, you don't need to go down too deeply, but it's just the idea of, um, I did this for years. I, I engaged in spiritual bypassing for years um, in my pursuit uh, for for spirituality. And, and I and I still consider myself a very deeply spiritual, even a religious person. So it's not that I think this is wrong, but, you know, this sort of drive for goodness and perfection, for connection, for spirituality, um, while sort of sort of glossing over, while bypassing so much that is clearly not 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 well, right? So much that is going on in me. Um, we try to solve all our problems through this spiritual path. Right, we try to switch. Our life is in shambles, and, and we think if we can just connect to whatever the path is, everything will be fine. Um, but it's not fine, right? It's not fine. And I think this is a whole other issue, a whole other conversation. But I think that's that might be why we see in the in the in the world of gurus, and you know, uh, you know, we see a lot of like really sort of high-tier, enlightened gurus types who are, who are getting involved in all kinds of scandals, right? Whether they're, they're having sort of uh, sexual misconduct with their, with their devotees or, or, or whatever. Uh, and, I, and I think this is part of what happens because of this phenomenon, right? Like people, I, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's probably fair to say that most of these people's experiences, these gurus, their experiences of spirituality and enlightenment is probably real. 
they're probably not faking it and deceiving people on purpose. The problem is they 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 and it's hard to find an analogy for this, but um, they sort of evolved in this one area, but they it, it's almost like cleaning your house and shoving every you know you clean your room but you shove everything in the closet right and then you say look my room is clean come on in and it's spotless but just don't open that closet door because everything is piled out right nothing you haven't really cleaned your room so it's not that I'm you know I, I, I pursue the spiritual path if you want to but we, we can't just shove everything in the closet we have to deal with it. We have to put it where it actually goes. We have to get rid of things we don't want or don't need. We have to bring more things in that we just haven't want. And then we have a really clean room and a and a functional closet. And I think that's what I think that's what a development actually looks like. I agree. And again, that was such a great explanation because like you said, you, you can clean your room. But also you can only shove so much in the closet and it will only stay in there for so long because you can't just keep piling stuff in there more and more and more. At a certain point, that closet is going to burst open and the entire room is going to be dirty again, which mm-hmm. gets to the point where if that can happen, then it's not really clean to begin with. You're That's just right. bypassing it. That's right. And then you're stuck with wondering, like, why, why this happened? I thought I, I thought I, I thought I'm better. I must not be doing it right. All, all that is, you, know, you can see how it's all cyclical. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> next question I wanted to ask is, is intimacy possible while guarding against vulnerability? I sure hope so. <laughs> um, my wife sure hopes so. Um, um, my sake, um, I think so. I, 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 I'm this this question. Um, makes me quite conscious of my uh, inclination to say uh, an either or, a black or white answer, right? Like yes or no, right? Um, and I have to remind myself it's very rarely. Black or white, either or, it's, it's, it's always a spectrum, right? Always a, always a spectrum. So is intimacy possible while also guarding against vulnerability? Yes, I think so. Um, but it's, I think it's one of those areas where the more vulnerable you allow yourself to be and are able to be, the more intimate I think you'll find that you're able to be, right? Um, and, and the more reserved, protected, defended you find yourself, the, the more difficult it is for one to be vulnerable. I think to that degree, intimacy is probably more difficult for you. It's, it like gives with, they both give with each other. I was thinking um, <clears throat> kind of like the closet, right? So if intimacy and vulnerability are connected um you can't have one that's lacking because at a certain point the other will catch up to it right so if if your room isn't clean 
and it's, everything is shoved in color, like you said, like the more vulnerable you allow yourself to be, and, and this is how I feel, the, the deeper your intimacy can be. But if you're trying to be intimate, but you're holding on and not allowing yourself to be vulnerable at a certain point, you're going to have to catch up. That vulnerability is going to have to catch up and you're going to have to do work because I feel like you can't go too far in one without the other. I feel like it's kind of a, a you know, a tug and pull type thing. That's right. That's right. You go too far in, in one and, and you'll, you'll, you'll find your, you'll find the boundary of the other, right? You'll, you'll feel it and you'll have to do that work to, uh, to like grow that, right? And as you grow that one, the other one will then give more. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's, that's the way I was trying to explain it. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way. I, I like that. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so another one. This I think this is going to be a, a another tough one too. Um, how can wounds become the doorways into our transformations? Yes, that's a big one. I just, I, I was, I was, um, I, I just came across a, a Rumi, poet Rumi. Um, across one of his quotes just this morning I'm not going to be able to recall it word by word um, but he, but he said something like um, take care of or be mindful of or, or pay attention to something like that but in much more poetic language uh, take care of your wounds take care of, of the places in you that hurt of your pain of your suffering because it's that's very likely the thing that will lead you to God, right? Um, and uh, one of my favorite uh, authors, theologians, Catholic writers, Richard Rohr, um, wonderful, wonderful man, wonderful writer, often says that through, either through you know great love or through great suffering. We usually find God or, or, or transformed through great love or great suffering, uh, and oftentimes those two are mixed up together. Um, so those are very, you know, sort of Catholic religious language, and they they don't they don't need to be, you know, that way. But that might resonate with some people. But when when it comes to, I think there's something perennial in this. There's something universal in this. Uh, even I think was it Leonard Cohen, the the musician who what was that lyric in that in a song I think he wrote, uh, the cracks the cracks are where the light kicks in, something like that, right? So there's this universal sense of it is our, it is the places that we're broken, it is the places that we're wounded, that 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 let in the light, that let in the healing, right? I think for therapy. In this context specifically, what makes that possible is 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 the is the, the healing relationship, right? The being able to explore and open up those those wounds uh, 
in the context of a of a relationship that feels safe enough and can contain can contain someone. Yeah. How's that? That was a that's a huge question. <laughs> it is. But yeah. I, I think I think the, the the analogy you gave of um the light comes in through the cracks, right? Mm-hmm. Because if, if a crack could be considered a wound and that is where the light comes in, then that means that that is where we need to focus in order for the light to actually, you know, be at its brightest If and, and for us to have the most healing. So I think that, I think that you did a good job of, of explaining that question and, and answering it. And it, and it, and it, and it de-pathologizes wounds and the cracks, right? It, 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 it depathologizes them, right? If a crack is where the light comes in, then the crack is not something that's wrong with you, right? It's, it's actually something that's, you know, within, you know, I'm, I, I like the, the language of it's, it's something sacred. Not everybody likes that kind of you know, sort of religious, spiritual language. I like that language. It's the crack is something sacred that allows the divine to come through. I'm comfortable using that language for, for me. Um, but in a in a sort of a secular perspective, it's 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 depathologized. It's not. It's 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 the idea that you know, uh, show me your wounds, and and I'll show you. What happened to you, right? Not what's wrong with you. What happened to you? Um, and through working through that, I think there's the end. I like that a lot. Yeah, because it's not what's wrong; it's what happened. And if we realize that it's what happened, then we can take some of the shame and the guilt and and all the negativity away from what we think is something that may be attached to us or something that's wrong with us. Beautifully said. Yeah. Wish I said that. Nailed it. I think you did. (laughs) (laughs) We said it together. (laughs) Okay. So I wanted to ask another question. Um, And I got this directly from one of your posts. The traumatized individual cannot keep company with itself. Can you talk about what that means? Yeah. Um, that's mostly me just trying to be poetic and write a, 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 a nice Instagram post. Um, but, and this is also, this is also a huge, uh, really I'm kind of riffing off, off, uh, off the work of, you know, theorists like, uh, Philip Bromberg, uh, contemporary psychoanalyst who, who died. Uh, not too long ago, I don't think, a couple of years maybe. Um, and, 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 and his sort of elucidation of a theory of dissociation, right? And so really, a really sort of concise way that I think, so I think about this, Bromberg talks about this idea of self-states, self-states. And this is really kind of in line with parts, parts language, which, you know, IFS, uh, things like that. 
it's the idea that that none of us are none of us are or have one unified self. I am Joshua. That is who I am. That is all of me, right? Um, it's the idea that we're all made up and consist of multiple and various self-states. And sort of mental health, you know, quote-unquote, uh, consists of an individual being able to move, move around uh, flexibly between and from these various self-states. In a, in a natural, organic way, right? Um, I'm a different. I'm in a different self state right now with you, and you, you are with me than than we probably were an hour before we got on this call, right? And that at infantum, right? We all have these different self states, and and health is being able to experience all of them, sort of. Unconsciously, this is an unconscious process. This doesn't, we don't think about, now I'm shifting self states. Um, this just happens when there's health. Dissociation splits these self states and prevents the flexible, organic movement between the two, right? So it's kind of, I, I like to think about it kind of like a, a group of islands in the sea, right? And you've got all these communities that live on these different islands, and everyone's got these boats, and they can travel to and from each island, and everyone knows everyone, and they chat, and they share food, uh, they play games, and then they leave, and they're just constantly visiting each other. That's health, you know. Uh, but then when it comes to dissociation and trauma, it's like the transportation system in that in that area, the boats are down. And so now the people on these individual islands can no longer talk to one another, right? They, they, like, and over time, they'll forget about each other, right? Over, you can imagine for the first couple of months and years, it'll be, they'll be waving, you know, at, you know, at the other island and it's far away and they want to go chat. But, rambling now, but, you know, years later, you can imagine that they, they will have forgotten that they even existed. So, all that to say, that, that's my poetic way of saying, you know, when, when trauma comes comes online and, and we experience dissociation, we're split internally. And these various parts of ourselves, these various self-states, these island parts, they forget about each other and they can't keep company with one another. So it's, it's, it's a little bit like we are... We can't keep company with ourselves. Wow. I actually pictured that in my mind as you were describing it, and it makes perfect sense. You 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 literally just broke down the the entire internal family system with a word picture and the illustration of how if the way to um get back and forth the transportation system between those islands is down it's dissociation that was beautiful Man. yeah so, and i think so many people will be able to to grasp that and have a light bulb moment of what 
trauma can do internally to us. Hmm. It fragments us. It fragments us from ourselves, hmm. right? It keeps us strangers to ourselves. Uh, I, I, I remember having another post that I said basically the same thing, you know, always saying essentially the same thing uh, in different ways. Therapy is about reintroducing the patient to themselves over and over again. Wow, I like that, yeah. and, and it makes a lot of sense too. Because you have to, you have to get to know yourself because the parts that have been exiled or isolated or you're unable to get to, you have to get to them. So you're yeah. you're getting yeah. to know parts of you and pieces of yourself. Great job, great job. Um, okay, another post of yours. It said, the body will speak when words cannot be found. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, again, that's just me trying to be poetic and post something that's going to get some traction on uh, on Instagram. Um, <laughs> but the idea behind it is that, again, through dissociation, right? Dissociation is so important to the way I think about all of this. It's kind of like a foundation to upon everything. Um, so, so many, so many folks come into therapy, kind of like what we said at the beginning. I know something's wrong, but I don't, I don't exactly, I can't put a name to it. And. This, this post of mine can, can really, it's quite broad, right? It, it, it could probably be taken from anything as far as like even somatic, psychosomatic issues, right? So something's wrong, something's wrong emotionally and uh, psychologically, but it's, it's so, it's so divorced from conscious mind. It's so embodied in the body. It's so, in the, in, it's so much of a, unconscious somatic experience that, that it might show up as like GI issues or uh, you know, uh, headaches or whatever, right? So the body has a way of communicating these, what are often psychological issues. Um, and this, this is what these are what symptoms are. Symptoms are just the, you know, the body and the psyche's way of saying something's not right here, right? This is why any therapy that primarily seeks to get rid of symptoms and, and measures the success of a therapy by symptom reduction is most of the time, not even all the time, but is most of the time problematic. Because if, if, if we get rid of the symptom, maybe through a pill or through a, a manualized intervention of some kind or through whatever means, but we don't understand why the symptom is there in the first place, it's just going to show up again, right? Through some other means. <clears throat> A more subtle sort of relational way this plays out in therapy is, you know, as a therapist, we're, we're always listening, but we're not just listening with our ears to what the patient says. We're listening 
for subtle movements, micro movements, um, anything that's going to show something about what the unconscious is, is, is saying or what it's like for that person to be in a room with us. Right? So whether it's even something as small as I mean, this is kind of a, a trivial example, but it could be as, as small as, you know, someone coming into therapy and, you know, uh, maybe they have a, a they have a, their purse with them, right? And they always sit down on their couch. They always, they, they fold the purse in their lap. Right? They never, they never put it down. They just always fold the purse in their lap. Um, if I'm not paying attention to do anything but what the client is saying to me, then that that type of information is not really important. But as soon as I start to pay attention to body language and slight changes in, in that realm, in a sort of a subtle somatic realm, I might start being curious about, I wonder what the patient is trying to tell me by keeping their purse like that. Right, and then I can bring it, you know, in a in a in a way that feels therapeutically beneficial. Like I I can bring it up, and we can talk about it. And that's an example where that patient may not have known consciously what what they wanted to say, but somehow they communicated it to me through through this other means. I think you just gave a whole different. Uh, outlook on on body language, right? Because we've been talking about body language for so long. It's such a, a a term that's used so frequently, but I don't know if I've ever really thought about it the, in a in a therapeutic or in a um, you know a, from a a therapist standpoint to where you would be looking for body language to see what the body is trying to communicate. You know, you could. You can see that someone has a frown on their face and say, oh, that person might be upset or, yeah. you know, small things like that. But but what the way you just um, broke it down, that that gives a whole different light to it. And it, it really does show that the body is communicating subconsciously for us and we may not even know it. But you'd have to be That's trained right. in order to pick out those things and see them. Yeah, it certainly helps to, to, to be trained, but. Certainly, it's not a requirement, and it's and it's and it's, and it's certainly not a like a hyper vigilant scanning. Like a, it's not a constant scanning of like what is the body doing, what is the body doing, right? It's it's a much more relaxed. Like it's not, you know, therapeutic listening is very interesting, right? It's it's very much an active, I would say, relational and embodied listening. But it's also quite relaxed, and and. In my mind, you have to sort of be somewhat relaxed in order to not only listen to what the patient is saying and not saying, but also listen to what you, the therapist, are saying. Not not through words, but through what's coming up unconsciously. What's your body, what's your body as a therapist doing? How are you feeling with this patient? What does it feel like to be in the same room with this person? 
right? Um, that is really important information that, that might say something about what brings this particular person to therapy. Right. Um, also, because I think that at a certain point, the body language, but also the energy of, of the patient, you'll, you may be able to pick up on, on both of those things, and that may give you a window into what's really going on. Absolutely. Um, I think you did a amazing job at answering the questions. The the analogies that you gave, the word pictures. I, I love the islands and the, the boats getting back and forth as a way to show how the internal family system can be connected. Um, so I want to say thank you so much for the way you you handled this masterfully. Um, it's it's no question that you are skilled in what you do as a clinician. I'm sure your your patients um, and clients benefit um, from your knowledge, your understanding, everything. So thank you so much for this, Josh. Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity. Thanks for the great questions. It's fun. If someone wanted to find you on uh, online or on social media, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me uh, in a couple of places. I, I on Instagram. Um, I'm on Instagram. What is my handle? Um, I believe it's, it's the name of my you know our practice, Patia, Patia Counseling. That might be it. I'm I'm not 100 sure. P A H T I A Patia Counseling. I don't know. Maybe you can find it. Find me there. Um, um, small little community there, and then on Twitter, uh, I think my handle on Twitter is TherapyWorks. T H E R Therapy with, with an I. T H E R E P I Works. TherapyWorks. Um, yeah, I'm kind of always messing around on there, um, see what I can come up with. I, I I love my little communities that I've built there. Um, so check me out there. Okay, great. Well, again, um, Josh, I want to say thank you so much for this, what you've done, um, the way the way you do it. And um, I, I really appreciate your time and your expertise. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.